You are listening to Pop Culture Detective Audio Files. In each episode, we investigate the social and political messages embedded in popular media. I'm your host, Jonathan McIntosh, and today we'll be doing an in-depth examination of the Disney Plus series, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. The Falcon and the Winter Soldier has arrived on Disney Plus. I got a vibranium arm. It's action-packed. And I can fly. Pulse pounding. Let's get to work. And it only gets better and better. It went the wrong way. I cleared the way. You're supposed to follow me. It's in every action movie. Superheroes cannot be allowed to exist. Falcon and the Winter Soldier is the second in a truly exhausting slate of planned Marvel streaming projects. This one designed to fit neatly into the standard buddy cop formula. The show picks up shortly after the events of Avengers Endgame and follows Sam Wilson and Bucky Barnes as they navigate a post-Thanos universe where half the Earth's population has been suddenly restored after the blip. There are two main plot lines in the show. The core narrative focuses on passing the mantle of Captain America from Steve Rogers over to Sam, and the writers spend a fair amount of time trying to address, or at least acknowledge, the history of structural racism in the United States. There's also a secondary storyline about Bucky looking for redemption, and trying to come to terms with his past as a brainwashed Hydra assassin. So while the series starts off with some interesting setups, like other MCU stories before it, it is ultimately constrained by the conventions of the superhero genre and fails to follow through on much of its own potential. There's a lot to unpack in this show, and here to help me do that is my friend and fellow media critic, Emron Siddiqui. Emron Siddiqui is a writer and filmmaker challenging systems of domination. Their writing on white supremacy, patriarchy, and popular media has been published by The Atlantic, Bitch Magazine, BuzzFeed, Literary Hub, and others. They are currently the communications director at Black Star Projects, home of the Scene Journal, and Black Star Film Festival. Nice to be here, even though you made me watch this show. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. I always do this. Uh, I make people watch things they would not otherwise watch and then force them to talk about it. But I think hopefully it'll be a fruitful discussion uh, for the listeners. So one of the reasons that I wanted to discuss this series uh, is because in addition to the politics and the militarism, uh, there are also themes of masculinity running through the series. Uh, those themes involve things like male friendships, uh, redemption arcs, uh, and also men in therapy. And then the other reason that I thought Falcon and the Winter Soldier was useful to discuss is because it's reflective of the sort of larger politics and ideology in the MCU more broadly. So it functions as a kind of microcosm for the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's time for the soul-gazing exercise. I like oh this one, Doc. Thank you for it. I love this. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, right, turn around, turn right around, up face your ass. Face yeah, you, face you should really yeah. enjoy this. I'm going to. I know you are. Yeah. Get close. This is good exercise. Thanks, Doc. So I thought we might start by talking about men in therapy, because one of the plot lines of this series is that Bucky Barnes is in therapy. Uh, now, it's a court-mandated therapy as sort of a condition of his parole, but it does give us images of men participating in the therapy or counseling situation. Um, now, that is rare <laughs> most of the time, other than like Goodwill Hunting and a few other examples. It's usually a joke. <laughs> I thought of the Sopranos, you know, when you see men in therapy in the beginning, they're almost always or often resistant to it. 
whether it's court mandated or or not, it's like who is that for? It's it's for the viewer who's skeptical of therapy. You know, like you don't really need to do that setup. But anyways, but so immediately you know when you're watching it, like this is supposed to be kind of if not a joke, it's supposed to be odd that he's in therapy and it's not a conventional therapist client situation by any means and you know I, like eventually there's two people having therapy <laughs> at once uh right, or right, not right. a couple anyways it starts off with you know him in therapy and that is meant to be kind of surprising right and one of the reasons it's meant to be surprising is because you know we have 25 or 26 marvel movies now all of these characters who are involved in universe-ending trauma all the time, and yet there are, there's no mention of, of therapy or how that could create PTSD or you know, lasting emotional issues. Uh, and the only two times that we have seen any sort of therapy referenced in the MCU up until this point was uh, there was a scene in Captain America Civil War. Tony Stark sort of has this, tech, this like hyper-real technology projection thing where he's like, reliving a traumatic moment from his past, right? And mm. yeah, the idea is that you can purge these memories by reliving them, right? But you don't need a therapist for that. You just need this technology to like visually recreate trauma for you or something. It's ridiculous. And then the other one is Iron Man 3, which uh, was the one where Tony Stark had had PTSD and it manifests in panic attacks. That's like right, a, right. A, a plot point. I think there's a lot of these films, they start down a road that's like, oh, that's interesting. They're going to try to address something uh, more deep and meaningful and like, oh, that's superhero with PTSD. Okay, that's interesting. And then they just completely you know, lose the thread and it just it unravels and becomes nonsense uh, because it has to fit in the structure of these, of these superhero films. And so in that one, you know, he, um, he doesn't go to see a therapist. He doesn't get medication. He doesn't you know, do any of that stuff. He has this conversation with this like 10-year-old and the kid is like, you don't need your suit. You can be an Iron Man without your suit. And he's like, that's right. So he goes to Home Depot and he makes like homemade weapons. And then he uses those homemade weapons to go kill a bunch of guys. And that yeah. cures him <laughs> of his PTSD somehow. Uh, <laughs> so it's like, do the thing that caused PTSD <laughs> more, but without the suit. And then we're, we're good. Then you're free. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, what's interesting about both of these uh, scenarios in, in this show and that movie is like, there's almost this implication that sometimes men, and of course here we're talking about superheroes, but the implication is like sometimes men have such deep, huge issues, like such big traumas that no therapist, nobody really could understand or help them. You know, and that, that's one of the messages you get from this show is like, you know, Bucky, who's also dealing here with the trauma of having killed a bunch of people and trying to like work through that, the therapist isn't the one who helps him get through that. And, and similarly, through the rest of the show, he enacts more violence, kills more people, and comes around through the help of another man who's a superhero. It's really like Falcon is the only other yeah. person who can understand so in the end, you wouldn't say that, even though they represent therapy, you wouldn't say that this would necessarily encourage someone to go to therapy. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was struck by was the fact that, you know, this is a court mandated kind of thing. So he's forced to be there and he clearly doesn't want to be there. And that's part of the 
you know, the underlying humor in these scenes is that, you know, he's he has no buy-in in the situation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in order for therapy to really work, the person who's going has to be invested in the process. And you don't get that at all. You get the the idea that he's there, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to talk to her. And so there's a lot of this um, of defiance. Right. Um, he's never being honest. And in fact, we get these intercuts where uh, she has these rules, which are like, don't don't hurt anybody. And, you know, he says, oh, I would never hurt anybody. And then it cuts to him like hurting somebody, right? The idea is that he's going to make amends or try to make amends. And that in- involves a certain level of violence and threats and so on. We've been doing this long enough that I can tell when you're lying. Well, you seem a little off today. So tell me about your most recent nightmare. I didn't have a nightmare. Oh, come on, really? You're gonna do the notebook thing? Why? It's passive aggressive. You don't talk, I write. He only tells the truth when he's not in therapy, when he's, when he's you know, finally decided, okay, I can have this friend uh, in Sam. And then you know, they have this moment, one moment, where they're sort of honest with each other. And uh, then he says, yes, I still have the nightmares. But otherwise, he doesn't. He doesn't listen to the therapist. <laughs> You know, that's sort of a classic patriarchal masculinity kind of thing to do, is to not accept <laughs> input uh, when it's given, because that requires vulnerability and humility mm-hmm. and stuff that we're not going to see here. There was an opportunity for the show to take a different route. Yeah. And they and they and they didn't. You know, even this idea that like like lying to your therapist, I mean, people do do that. I mean, they're sure, they're sure. we could even if you're not gonna have the, the breakthrough happen in therapy. I mean, I think often, like even when I go to therapy, it's like, it is sometimes like, it's not necessarily what I just told my therapist or what they said to me, but it's afterwards, I'm talking about my therapy with a friend. And in that conversation, I have the breakthrough, which I then might go back and tell my therapist. So there were, there were ways in which I would have liked if at the end he continued therapy. I mean, this guy's what, like been alive for like a long time, right? Like a hundred years. There's a lot to go through. It's like, yeah. you know, it's also portraying trauma as such an isolated, it's like, oh, I, just, I have this list of people I killed. If I get over that, I'm good. You know, and it's like, no, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot uh, <laughs> more right. to, to go and unpack. And so, yeah, a different ending would have been, even if let's say he never tells the truth to the therapist, in the end, he's like, Maybe I need a new therapist or something. I don't know. There were just other ways it could have gone where you could still maintain some of the reality that men struggle telling the truth to their therapists as well. But it ends up, again, to me, it ends up like, I don't think you'd walk away being like, I should go to therapy. It's, it's... Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't show it as being, the therapy itself as being useful. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she is right that he needs to build friendships and so on. But it was six episodes. They could have had him in in each episode going... Yep. And in each episode, learning something, you know, some sort of transformation to make it seem like that was actually working. I mean, therapy is often portrayed as something that men don't want to go to. There's a lot of resistance to it, which, you know, is is a real thing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, many years ago when I was uh, first, you know, when, when the women in my life first suggested that I go uh, see a counselor, I was resistant to that idea. And, uh, you know, this is getting a little personal, but, you know, I pushed back on it, uh, but I, you know, I finally did it and it turns out that they were right. It was very helpful <laughs> and, uh, and useful, but it's a thing that is ongoing. 
mm-hmm. is not something that you can go once or twice and then, oh, I'm good. I had this breakthrough. I purged, you know, like Tony Stark <laughs> says, I purged the bad, bad trauma. That's not how it works. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a process. Uh, and it's often a slow process. It's not necessarily always going in a, in one trajectory, right? I mean, you're trying to work through things that are, that are quite difficult. It would have been nice to see that on screen. Simultaneously, we're, we're seeing um, Sam's character who is also coming to terms with like lots of trauma, both personally and his family, but then ancestral stuff, like just being a black man in, in the US. And it's like, Sam's resistant to therapy too. Like when it's like a right. joke, the scene that they have together where therapists wildly <laughs> just <laughs> right. like, is like, we're going to do this therapy together, the two of you. It doesn't even know Sam at all right, right. Uh, and forces them to do therapy and Sam's resistant. But it, it, another missed opportunity there is like Sam could use therapy too. Right. As I often see in action films, it's like you only have therapy when it's like, it's about killing, you know, like the Sopranos too. It's like another famous, which I think does a better job in, in portraying therapy, but still it's like Tony Soprano has to go to therapy because he's a murderer. You know, there's other shows out there, but I just mean in these types of pieces of media, it's like you only go when it's murder and it's like, right. there's other traumas. You know? and, yeah. And, and it's, it's not even just murder. It's if you've killed the wrong people. Ah, yes. Right. Because, <laughs> because in the first 10 minutes of this show, Sam kills at least a dozen people, <laughs> yes. at least, right? Throws them out of helicopters, but it's never thought of as uh, in terms of trauma. It's never framed that way because they were all bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even Bucky, he's like. I need to get over these this list of people I kill that feel so bad about it. But literally we see him like beating up people, throwing people off of moving vehicles. And, and like, threatening to kill he threatens to kill Zemo. He like does a yeah. mock execution of Zemo too, which yeah. is torture under the UN convention, whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know. And I'm pretty sure they, that he kills people. Like, oh, you yeah. know, like yeah. but so it's just like like you said, it's not the wrong people. So there's no guilt, there's no PTSD, there's no effect. It's just fine. They, they really do pick and choose on, on when it matters and when it doesn't. Just to sort of wrap up the therapy part, the therapist in that first session with Bucky, she says, you need to nurture friendships. He's one of these sort of rogue loner types. And so the show sort of tries to, over the course of six episodes, create a friendship between these two men who don't like each other. I mean, that's it's sort of like this classic lethal weapon style buddy cop genre thing. All right, get close. Closer. We, well, which way? Why do you have to have your legs open? You know what? Fine. Here. You happy now? All right. right. Good. We're locked in. It's a little close. It's very close. That's what you wanted, right? Guys. So there's lots of bickering. They're constantly undercutting each other. They are Mm -hmm. uh, putting each other down. And that happens throughout the show. And it's just petty stuff, right? They're in a car and Bucky's not going to move his seat up because Sam is in the back seat, right? It's sort of, or like Sam asks him a question and he just like looks at him and walks away. Like just little aggressive, unnecessary. It's all supposed to be kind of humorous. I I just find it so tiring Yeah, Uh, because that's always the setup. It's like two guys can't be friends unless they go through this protracted process Mm -hmm. of like hating each other first. And having this rivalry and this competition. And- yeah, it just feels very forced. It's like, how many of these types of experiences do you have to go through together to be friends? Because like, they just went through like 
they were all part of the end of the world, you know, <laughs> like, and coming back. And it's just funny to me. It's like, now we have to go through this other experience for me to trust you. Just odd. And, and I felt it was just forced, even, even if beyond like it being troubling and what it's emphasizing, I found it kind of like just trying to force a chemistry that I didn't buy because I was like, these guys were Avengers or whatever. The last thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of their friendship, and I don't, I don't know if you got this sense when you watched it, but I, I definitely did. There's a thing that modern writers do, which is that they are aware of fan fiction, and they are aware of conversations that are happening within various fandoms. And they often will try to throw some hints at the fans without making anything explicit. This is especially true when you have two heterosexual male characters becoming friends. Mm. Um, now, sometimes this, this is called queer baiting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another term for it could be fan fiction service. Mm, mm. And so in, in this case, it seemed very clear to me that, that they have these two straight characters um, that are very sort of macho and tough guys. And they're throwing them into all of these sort of physical situations together where it usually fights, mm -hmm. almost always fights. But they're not going to make these guys gay. They're not going to make them bisexual. They're not going to make them questioning or curious or anything. But they know that that is a hope among certain segments of the fandom. And so they want to hint at it without actually doing it. It's a very sort of cowardly way to write something. Like, just make the guys at least bisexual. Come on. Right. But they're not going to, you know, it's Disney. It's a multi billion dollar corporation. They're scared to death of alienating markets and all this other shit. And so they're going to take the cowardly path, which is to make all these sort of hints and jokes and winks. I noticed this happen over and over again. There's a scene where they're fighting and then. Falcon kind of makes a joke about how, oh, you got beaten up by a little girl, but then he goes and saves him and they kind of roll into a field together and end up on top of each other, right? Right. And they have this sort of weird gay panic moment where they're like, get off of me, get off of me, you know, like typical sort of bro dude kind of moment. That whole scene is set up very specifically to send a message to the fans like, oh, you want, you wanted some tension here, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, that that seemed very deliberate. The couples therapy tactics right, that the right. just out of nowhere, where the therapist is like, "We're gonna." I usually do this with with couples, and then they have them kind of. She has the two stare into each other's eyes, right, and then they have to get closer and closer. And there's a whole weird panic about that. And also, in the end, it's like not just they can't just let it be because it would be one thing if like you did some some queer baiting, which is never the best. But if if it's more like suggestive stuff versus what the show does it it, it it annihilates any sense that they could be queer so it'd be one thing if it was like there's these scenes where they're kind of flirting or they roll around in the hay you know whatever but the show is very much then going to emphasize oh they're definitely not into each other right it's almost yeah it's like they would be disgusted to have to be with each other you know so that's what bothers me about it is the show has nothing to say about that. It just wants right. you to, like you said, it just wants to give something to the fans. But then also the other fans who are homophobic can also happily right. watch the show and be like, oh, yeah. Yeah. And because they put in lines, every time one of these little things happens that you know could be suggestive or could be left un unclear, 
they reject it in the script. I mean, the, the dialogue is, no, 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 no. There, there has to be a verbal rejection from the guys. I mean, even something otherwise innocuous, like at the end, they've become friends. They've had their little sort of informal therapy session together while throwing a shield around. And then it's like, I, I guess we're partners. And then he's like, no, 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 co-workers, co-workers, right? So it's like, even that language. Yeah. Yeah, they're partners. They're fighting these yeah. dudes together. Like, but, you know, they have to reject it. Even that, yeah. you know? That's right, yeah. What it does also is it sort of prevents even platonic intimacy between what are ostensibly straight characters because they have to have this no homo kind of right. freak out, you know? Yeah. So you can't, you can't even have, you know, let, let alone having flirtation. You can't even have just like intimate, honest moments between straight guys. Right. You can't really have friendships where, like for instance, at the end, they've gone through something wild together and it's like, you know, a character in one of these shows would never say, thank you for having my back. You know, that meant a lot to me. I care about you. You know, like you, you can't, you can't say that. It has to be a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the, the jokes don't stop. I mean, even once they've started getting along, they're fixing the, the fishing boat together, you know, and it's like, oh, they're, it seems like, okay, they're building, they have this like friendship building montage where they do, but then, you know, there's this weird out of nowhere, like, don't flirt with my sister or I'll kill you. He says he'll like chop him up and feed him to the fish or something. It's yeah. and it's you know it's supposed to be funny like banter, but it's like we're still doing this. <laughs> like that's so let's uh, let's circle back and talk about. It, it seems very clear to me that the writers in this show are aware of the sociopolitical zeitgeist in the real world. Um, you know, this show came out in in March 2021, um, so post. George Floyd, post Black Lives Matter protests, you know, uprisings, those things are ongoing, even if it doesn't get as much media attention this year as it did last year. But the writers are clearly trying to respond to racial injustice and the history of racial injustice. And, but I don't think that it, they know what to do with it. Mm. But, it, you know, it's, it's a theme running throughout, it's, you know, in the, from the first episode through the last. We got to do something. We got to tell somebody. No. Leave me dead. My name is Barrett. But the world's different now. I know people. Man, that's why you're here? You think things are different? You think times are different? You think I wouldn't be dead in a day if you brought me out? They will never let a black man be Captain America. And even if they did, no self-respecting black man would ever want to be. The ways in which the show is interesting to me, it does have to do with race in the sense that like they introduce some interesting ideas and then don't either they don't follow through or they end up taking them in really the unfortunate directions. You know, one of the central things happening in, in the show is that Sam is trying to grapple with whether or not he can be Captain America. Steve Rogers, who's the white man, basically, you know, left it to him to be the next Captain America. But Sam struggles with that. And in that process, he discovers that there was this other black man who, you know, I think they were for he was forced to take this yeah. super serum. It was an experiment done where they were told it was like a tetanus shot or something, right? And then 
they had given him sort of surreptitiously super serum. Yeah. So he, he was um, essentially experimented on without his knowledge or consent. Right. Yeah. And in that way, the show really reflects real life and what we know about the Tuskegee Airmen and the experiments that the government did on those black men who were part of the military. And, and so when they, when he meets this character, the, the guy is so angry and I felt it. And I felt like this is one of the first times we're having someone in the, in these films or shows like actually get angry at structural, like institutional racism to the degree that he says, leave me alone. I don't trust the U S government. I don't trust the state and the system to ever be able to make right what they did to me. They ended up in jail for 30 years so that he couldn't talk. You know, he's clearly traumatized by this. And, and like I said, angry and Sam walks away from that feeling that. And, and I, I was hoping when I was watching it, like, okay, this is going to be a turning point for this character. Um, and of course it, I knew it wasn't going to be this, but like, I really wanted it to, to be like, oh, he's going to give up this life. But in the same way that Bucky dealing with the trauma of killing people is not giving up on killing people. Sam confronted with the reality of how deeply rooted white supremacy is eventually comes to this place where he's like, well, no, it's my job to lead this system um, because at least I'm a black man doing it. And that fulfills the dream of this, this other man, but that is not the dream of that. (laughs) So like that guy did not, that guy was mad because he got experimented on. He was in jail. His friends were killed. And he very explicitly links it to the history of structural racism and slavery in the United States. Mm-hmm. What the show does is it sets up a juxtaposition between the older generation, which is represented by Isaiah, and Sam as sort of the new generation. So it, you know, they could have done something really interesting there. But instead, what they do is they acknowledge Isaiah's pain, right? And in several lines of dialogue at different points, you know, Sam says he's been through hell, but ultimately he's wrong. Mm-hmm. Isaiah's wrong. Because Isaiah's perspective is the US government <laughs> is never going to accept a black Captain America. But his larger point is that things haven't changed. Right, that structural racism that he experienced in his youth still exists today. And Sam's perspective is it's better now, like they will accept me, I'll force them to, kind of thing. And so Sam ends up being right. Yeah. And the other character, Isaiah, is framed as sort of like bitter and angry and unproductive in that. I would say that like there's this generational thing happening, but there's also a perspective that's just not represented. It's like Sam, there's to me some parallels with Obama. He's a centrist, really. (laughs) You know, he's like, I understand what you're saying, but I'm going to work through the system. And me being in power is going to be the thing that fulfills the dream you had. Whereas there's, there's not a representation of like actual radical organizers right now. Right. And in the context, like you were saying of this show coming out, after 2020, that to me was really, it, it irked me because then the person playing that role is Carly, and we'll get to that later. But there isn't a representation of like what people were actually fighting for in 2020. And as if there aren't people, right as we're watching this show, you know, on the streets demanding for the very changes that Isaiah's highlighting. 
like Sam's is kind of like this paternalistic figure for a lot of different people where it's like, oh, these people don't really understand what they're saying, but I'm going to translate it. And he's often translating it for white, a white audience. Like he's often being like, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm not like that extreme, like that guy or like her, but they're kind of right, but they're just doing it the wrong way. Just follow me. You know, and it's like- It is very reminiscent of the Obama approach that Sam- reaches out and says, I see you, but all the all the ways that you're doing it are wrong. Mm-hmm. Your resistance is wrong. We can make the politicians listen to us by just being reasonable. Right. And if history has taught us anything, it should be that that does not work. Uh, well, we'll get to the ending a little bit later, but the ending was infuriating for a <laughs> number of reasons. The show references structural issues. Um, so, you know, it, it brings up police profiling because Sam is stopped by the cops, right? Mm-hmm. They try to get a loan from the bank and the bank won't give them one, right? And it's sort of, there's a nod to that kind of structural discrimination. It, it sort of does this thing where it brings things up, but then never addresses them in any uh, structural way. There, There is no justice. There's no movement uh, to change those things. I, th- I think we should maybe talk about the conclusion to Isaiah's story, because I think the way that they resolve that plot line says a lot about how the MCU's politics work, mm-hmm. sort of the underlying ideological framework that is used in making almost all of these stories. And so what happens in the end is that, obviously, as everyone knew was going to happen, Sam decides that, yes, he's going to take up the mantle of Captain America. And in this sort of like ending scene, they attempt to wrap up Isaiah's story. Because Isaiah had warned, don't do it. And not, not, not just don't do it, but no self-respecting black man would ever take up the mantle of Captain America. Right? He says that. Mm-hmm. Sam decides to do it anyway. But then the writers try to tie everything up in a neat little package with a neat little bow by having Sam orchestrate the inclusion of Isaiah's story in the Captain America Museum in like Washington, D.C. Now they'll never forget what you did for this country. Never. You know, there's, there's, there's a gold statue of him in his military uniform from his youth, you know, and, and this is supposed to be the conclusion. This is supposed to wrap everything up somehow. Yeah, and we see him get emotional a bit, Isaiah. Um, that anger that Isaiah felt in the beginning, I, I felt like, how could you do this to this character? You know, even on an individual level, if we don't think about systemic issues, but for someone who was imprisoned for 30 years, was experimented on, saw all of his friends murdered and killed, and and then for it to just be like, oh, well, you get this statue now, and people are going to know. First of all, it's just one statue in a whole museum right. dedicated to Captain America. But second of all, to me, it's like reparations are a, a real, actually, one of the demands of the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter and real reparations for real violence and real oppression. And so this is another example of, of like how I think that the show and I guess the MCU overall is kind of trying to seem like it's radical or like touching on it, but then reinforcing it, just the status quo. It's like, right. and, and in fact, kind of like pushing down this idea that you need reparations. It's like, no, 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 no. Look, you got a black Captain America, you got a statue. What more do you want? You know, it's right, like, right, right. It's it's taking deep structural injustice, 
the legacy of which is alive and well in America, and saying the solution to this problem is better representation, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like, you know, he gets a statue, but he didn't in fact he explicitly said, do not tell people my story yeah. <laughs> because I will be targeted. Right? You think that the government's gonna let me be? Like they think I'm dead, right? That's the that's the conceit. That's why he can live free, is that he's the government thinks he's dead. And so Sam ignores his request, does exactly the opposite of what he wanted. And that's supposed to be a good thing because now people know. Right? It's sort of like, well, we just need to raise some awareness and that will somehow fix it without addressing any of the structural problems. Like you think the government isn't still doing all that stuff on some level in some in various places? I mean, come and on, of course you, they are. Can and you as imagine? I said that they were, and, yeah. I, and Sam was like, no, 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 no. You just need a statue in the museum. Can you imagine if on Twitter there was like a story about like a black man statues up in like Captain America's museum? The level of people being like, wow, political correctness gone wild. Isaiah would be attacked. I mean, I'm not, just like, with no money attached to that, not only would the government probably be surveilling him forever to make sure he doesn't say too much, but his life would change. And I just think like that's just one example of many of how that ending is just, it, it just undercuts everything he's saying in the beginning. And it just shows you that the show's not really on his side. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we see the same kind of political hedging in Carly's story yes. with, the, with the Flag Smashers. I think there's a, there's a parallel between Isaiah and, and the Flag Smashers here. They imposed struggle and hardship on us, then labelled us as criminals for pushing back. But the struggle is what brings us all together, people who have nothing in common. For we are, after all, simply one world and one people. So the Flag Smashers are this group of uh, what are referred to as terrorists. Uh, They are very clearly modelled on uh, or meant to be evocative of anarchism. Uh, although, like all Hollywood representations of anarchism, it has very little to do with actual anarchism as a political ideology. We do see that they are against national borders, which is something that uh, anarchists are as well. The idea being that if money and goods can flow freely, why can't people? They correctly understand that borders <laughs> are national borders are an artificial construct used to oppress people, keep people in, in certain zones, make their labor cheaper, and so on. I mean, that's all that's all correct. <laughs> Anarchism co- covers a wide range of political understandings. It's very hard to pin down. As Noam Chomsky says, there are threads to what anarchism is that are pretty consistent. Broadly speaking, the political ideology is about people working collectively to sort of self-manage their own uh, affairs in a, in a horizontal, but in most cases, a highly structured way. Um, now, when it's in Hollywood, it is portrayed as essentially chaos. Mm-hmm. That's true with the Flag Smashers because they don't really do collective organizing. Yeah. Either the writers don't know what collective organizing is, which is very possible, <laughs> or they just intentionally choose to present it as not that. It, they almost have more in common with like anonymous Right. right. So they have this app that they can get random people to do what it seems like it's collective action, but it's not collective action. It's aggregate action. Mm. You know, you sort of have this anonymous thing where, you know, all, everyone shows up and they don't even know each other. So right. you get the sense that like, except for the core group of, of like 
10, you know, super soldier uh, flag smashers. Everybody else is just sort of orbiting that group in sort of an anonymous kind of unconnected way, which is not what collective organizing is about. It's just not. Right. And so you have a lack of any sort of political, structural <laughs> ideology or, or, or collective organizing at all. They sort of take on this Robin Hood role. Um, which is which is you know sympathetic. Uh, the things that the flag smashers want are great. Yeah, they're great. They're great. I mean, it's like hundred percent on board with all yeah. of this. Like, you you want no national borders? All right, cool. Yeah. You know, you want uh, food dis- distributed to refugees? Yes. Uh, you want a shelter uh, and and medicine and vaccines distributed to people who don't have? Yes, I'm on board. Right. So it's. They kind of the writers almost sort of back themselves into a corner where they make the villains way too sympathetic. Yeah. Right? Because I mean, pretty much anybody watching this is gonna be like, Yeah, well, they're right. You know? And and they even have Sam say it. Like, yeah. what can you do? They're like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. And so what they do, the writers do in this, is that what they always do, which is they just have them commit murder for no reason. Right. Right? They just turn them into mass murderers, and then that lets us as the audience and Sam and everybody else sort of discount their movement. Hollywood is just famous for this. Anytime you have an activist group or anyone, even if they're running like a homeless shelter, they're probably going to be a murderer, <laughs> right? Because we're not going to expect it's going to be a twist. It happens all the time on like uh, uh, Law and Order, all the time. If there's, if there's anybody who is trying to help anybody uh, in, in sort of a systemic way, like if there's someone running a soup kitchen, it is 100% always going to be that guy who did it. <laughs> always. <laughs> And I just felt like there it was there was no way to for me to believe that Carly like Carly's trajectory was really unbelievable. Like given those stated goals and those desires to help that community of displaced people who were struggling to survive, the fact that she would go from there to being this mass murderer is not convincing, except the only way I could see this being believable is if you accept that anyone who wants to smash a flag or smash flags is inherently ridiculous you know because the only way that you, I, I could believe that Carly and also not just Carly that the, that group would follow Carly they, they have these cuts where they kind of look at her weird and they're like kind of troubled by her extremism yeah. but they yeah, don't like, do like, anything like, they don't even know she's going to kill a bunch of people yeah it's not like, even the people the like on the mission are like what are you doing yeah and we're supposed to be like oh yeah she's just personally as an individual building car bomb like yeah it, no, it makes and, no sense and, and it only works if you think and it has to work in the sense if the show's ultimately leading to becoming captain america you know, and and the juxtaposition of flag smashers and this shield, which is the American flag, right? You Stars know? and stripes, yeah, yeah. You can't have a group just be like, we don't want borders and countries and flags. It's like, well, then this whole mythos, you know, doesn't work. So they present themselves with this like really tough problem, and in some ways, again, I I feel like the show had a lot of potential, and it's like interesting that they even try to go there, but it all falls apart because the only way this works is if you believe that someone who wouldn't want borders would be you know, out of their mind. Yeah. Like a lot of things in this show, there is dialogue about that exact point. Like there's no subtext here. <laughs> in the very beginning, you know, uh, Sam has just done some really shady shit in Tunisia. <laughs> right. <laughs> totally black ops nonsense. And then he's like fixing his wingsuit or whatever in some cafe in the Middle East. And his buddy, his like army buddy is like, 
You know, I can understand when criminal gangs like sell weapons or rob banks, like that makes total sense. But but these flag smasher people, they don't want borders. They they're the ones you really have to watch out for. Like, wait, <laughs> the weapons dealers are not the ones we need to watch out for? Like Yeah, so you know, you've got this distorted and, and completely ridiculous presentation of what is essentially anarchism. And then you have Carly who almost everything she says we're down with. And then, you know, they have to, the writers have to find some way. Okay, we have to make her the villain somehow. Also, like, she doesn't even get, she doesn't really feel remorse. I mean, they don't give her, I even thought that was surprising because, like, I feel like often in these types of shows, at the very end, the character kind of gets a moment where it's like, oh, I've lost my way. And it was, I don't really feel like Carly gets a moment. Like, it seems like she believes that killing people was the thing to do. And it's just like that. Yeah, I mean, and again, this is in the dialogue. She has a line where she says, you know, violence is the only language these people understand, which is very astute uh, mm-hmm. when if talking mm-hmm. about the MCU in kind of a meta way, because that that is the essentially the, the thesis for the MCU uh, as, a, as a franchise. But within the context of what she's doing, it makes no sense. I mean, she is trying to prevent a vote on uh, sort of a global, they have this global council, and they're going to deport everybody who crossed boundaries to make the world work during the five years of the blip. They're going to deport them all back to wherever they came from, and it's going to essentially they're going to reset normalcy. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the language that's used in the in the show. They're going to take everything back to before the blip. That's what they're trying to do. Um, the idea being that before the blip, things were fine. So it's it's a resetting of the status quo. Uh, and so what that does is it puts the villains, the Flag Smashers and Carly, in a position of trying to prevent a return to an, an oppressive status quo. Mm-hmm. The villains, as, as happens in almost all of the modern MCU movies and, and shows, the villain is transformative in some way. They want to change the way society works. And the and the heroes are reactive in that they want to prevent that change from happening. Now, of course, because this is all written by uh, writers in writers' rooms at, at the Disney Corporation, the fundamental transformation that is being pushed for always includes mass murder. Always, it's just it's always mass murder. That's that's the only thing people can think to do, I guess. And so that puts the heroes in the MCU in a position where they are always trying to reinforce and protect the status quo. Right, they never use their powers or their skills to enact fundamental change. They never uh, try to do any sort of collective organizing. They like it's it's that's not what they ever do. They they are never agents of change. Mm-hmm. They're agents to protect the current system. That's the current system of governments and capitalism and militarism and everything else. And so within this context, then you've got the flag smashers are trying to prevent a vote that will essentially deport millions and millions of people, tens of millions of people. Depending on your perspective <laughs> watching this show, you'd be like, yeah, they, yeah you've got to stop that because that right. is really bad. Sam is put in a position where he has to stop the people trying to make change. He has to protect the people who are loudly and vocally on television saying they want to deport tens of millions of people. And his job is to save their lives so they can continue their work. And the way the show decides to square Sam's sympathy for Carly's cause and his 
role as Captain America, which is essentially to protect institutions of power. He gives them a stern talking to. Right, right. He gives them a good talking to. (laughs) This isn't about easy decisions, Senator. You just don't understand. I'm a black man carrying the stars and stripes. What don't I understand? The only power I have is that I believe we can do better. You've got to do better, Senator. You've got to step up. Look, you people have just as much power as an insane god or a misguided teenager. The question you have to ask yourself is, how are you going to use it? He gets to talk to these senators, and and the senators are so ready to dismiss the quote-unquote terrorists and say, like, you know, thanks for stopping what they were going to do. And Sam's like, no, hold on. They had a good point. You know, you need to do better. And then the senator, one of them, gets to say, well, it's actually more complicated than you understand, Sam. And Sam kind of is like, okay, but still but, just but do But be better. Yeah, be better. Be best. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's it. I mean, that's that's the whole, like, you have this institution of power, all of these powerful figures, and they're going to deport tens of millions of people. And then they just don't because he tells them, hey, man, you need to be better, right? right. A- as if the problem is just that they're just too out of touch. It's a very Aaron Sorkin kind of ending. It's like, the problem isn't the institutions of power or even really the people in those institutions of power. It's just they haven't been pointed in the right direction. <laughs> we can we can have faith in these institutions as long as we just we shame them into doing the right thing. Right? It's a, it's a complete misunderstanding of how power operates. Uh, it's a complete misunderstanding how politics works. It's so ineffectual at the end there. It's like this. Uh, this sort of neoliberal dream of how power works, right? It's just that, no, <laughs> that is well, not how the world works. It also like in a very, you know, I kind of want to connect it back to the the Isaiah storyline because in combination with that, it also just kind of like undercuts and dismisses again the amazing political moment we were in and are continue to be in, which is like these global really uprisings where there was collective organizing. You know, this, these didn't just happen because one person had a, a realization. And then that person, because they were had superpowers, um, made, you know, some people pay attention. They happened because thousands and thousands of people were organized to make a statement. And so the undercutting of Carly's and the Flag Smashers perspective is not only that in terms of what they're saying, but like you were saying before, their method. And the person who really gets the change done is this one singular figure, Sam, who, you know, goes and gives a talking to, uh, to the, the senators. And so the, the combination of like, let's dismiss what Isaiah's perspective and the reality of his life, which includes the history of this country. And then at the same time, let's dismiss these people who are really saying, you know, borders and the state are continue to be oppressive in this moment. And in that context, I find that the fact that Sam's able to come up with this quote unquote solution of just talking to senators, it, it also just kind of like makes it seem like don't go protest, like don't go join mass movements for change, you know, just find a hero. They know better than you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what Sam essentially does 
is he writes a letter to his senator. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's how the change happens. I mean, that's not how power responds. Power concedes nothing without a demand. Mm-hmm. And Sam has no demand. He has no power to back him up. I mean, the way that political power works is that you say, here are our demands, and here's our collectively organized group of people who will disrupt your society and make things not work, mm-hmm. you know, until you give in to those demands. Because people in power don't do the right thing because they suddenly have their consciousness raised, because they read a really good op-ed. That's not how it works. And even if it did work that way, that senator would be gone in a second. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Any CEO, they would be replaced within the day (laughs) by the board, right? I mean, it, it isn't about individuals deciding to be better. It is about people coming together to challenge power so that power has no choice. That's the same way that change is always made. The show wants you to believe that it's just you have to be stern but polite in your letter to the editor. At the same time, it's also saying like these movements can be easily dismissed. They're not that powerful because they're just actually like 10 people in a room who are just like really mad and want to kill people. Yeah. And and I just find that like that parallel in a story about the history of supposedly about the history of like racial injustice in this country to then also end up being like the one suggestion of a movement that we see in the show is just so easily dismissed because it's just like 10 people fighting in a room. Um, That's also upsetting to me because it's like, no, there's, first of all, there's millions of people still displaced and those people are angry, you know, like those people. And for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. For good reason. Those are the people, again, in real life, that would be why there would be this uprising and, and why there would be this um, like demand for resources. And it just like the show kind of dismisses them and it lets Marvel move on from this whole uh, topic. You know, it's like, yeah. we don't have to talk about it anymore. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, the show ends with Sam taking on the mantle of Captain America. Uh, the difference being that he hasn't had the serum, you know, he hasn't had this, he's not a superhuman. He's just a guy, but he's not, Captain America tough. He's tough, but he's not that tough. So there's this whole like extended training montage where he has to get like even tougher, like even yeah. more physically <laughs> uh, buff. And, you know, and they get lots of close ups of those muscles really, you know, <laughs> at the core, the, the MCU is always about physical strength, whether that's superhero based or just, you know, because you work out a lot. <laughs> the MCU has to reinforce the ideology of hypermasculinity. Mm-hmm. Sam has to sort of, he doesn't get the the spider bite and he doesn't get the serum. We have to have this extended training montage because he's not like bulky enough to really be a hero. And then, you know, he can become great enough. But apparently, according to reports in the news, he's not Captain America really because Captain America 4, which is the next movie, producers of that essentially said, uh, he hasn't earned it yet. We've got to really put him through the ringer. Even though this whole show was about <laughs> he's, he's him becoming Captain America, <laughs> for him to be able to earn the thing that we just saw him earning. It's interesting in the way that masculinity works. They set up an impossible standard of masculinity, which is how it is, you know, in the sense that, like, you're never man enough. You know, there's always another hurdle to climb. So, like, yeah, the Falcon was an Avenger already, you know, which I, honestly wasn't, it wasn't even clear to me. I didn't understand that Captain America was stronger than all the other 
Avengers, you know, I, but apparently he was. So then now he's got, he, he is the only one who could even move the hammer. Ah, true. So, so you're right. You're right. It budged in that scene <laughs> just for a millimeter. And so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now in the next movie, he's got to prove again that he's strong enough. And that is how these expectations of quote unquote being a man work. It's like, you're never actually going to be man enough to say, Oh, I'm a real right. man. You know, it's like, you got to keep proving it over and over again. And, and I mean, that, that is the, that is what the, the, the hegemonic hypermasculine ideal is, right? It, it's a hierarchy of masculinity where the, the ideal is always unattainable. Always. Right. Right. It's a hierarchical competition between men to achieve this thing that you, you can't ever achieve. And, yeah. And just real quick, I think it's also worth saying that it, People have pointed out on Twitter, but it's also racialized in the sense of the Falcon had this whole show about America's never going to have a black Captain America. And then supposedly disproves that. And then, you know, the reality is like even in the Marvel, the universe, we can't just have a black Captain America. It's got to be proven to us over and over again. So there's also that racial element. And I think it just goes to show that the structure and the system of our country and of Marvel as a expression of Hollywood, which is an expression of maintaining the status quo of this country. It's like kind of what we were saying before, like representation can only get you so far within that system. There's a larger conversation to be had about the constraints of the superhero genre and this kind of stories and the kind of political messaging that it simply cannot uh, address. And, you know, the flip side of that is the the authoritarian hyper-individualism that it inevitably falls into because of just because of the story structure of the genre and i think that's probably for a for a future episode where we can delve into into that sort of bird's eye view look at at the problems with the superhero genre uh so thank you for coming and and talking about this show and thank you for sitting down and watching it i know it was not <laughs> your favorite uh tv series <laughs> there was fun moments but no i i really enjoyed talking about it as always all right and and the next time that we talk will probably be about Ted Lasso season two. So I hope you're game to come back and talk about that. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) And with that, it's time to bring this case to a close. Please remember that all of our pop culture detective projects are 100% funded by listeners and viewers like you. So if you enjoy the kind of in-depth media criticism you just heard, please consider going over to Patreon to support our work over there. Just go to patreon.com backslash pop detective. As always, you can keep up to date with all of our projects on Twitter, at Pop Detective, and find all of our long-form video essays on the Pop Culture Detective YouTube channel. We'll be back again next month with another audio file investigation, but until then, please remember to follow or subscribe wherever you happen to get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening.